Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. Children who lose a parent or a sibling make for a surprisingly large group. Researchers believe one in 14 kids in the U.S. will suffer such a devastating loss before they turn 18. Surviving parents or guardians are often left coping with their children's grief, even as they themselves are dealing with loss. Enter Annie's Hope. The organization was founded in 1997 as the St. Louis Bereavement Center for Young People, and it seeks to help kids and their families heal. Joining us in studio to talk about Annie's Hope is founder and executive director Becky Byrne. Becky, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. We're also joined today by Brandon Mitchell and his son, Riley. They've used Annie's Hope services after Brandon's wife, Riley's mother, died while Riley was a young child. Uh, Brandon Mitchell, welcome to the show. Thank you for having us. And Riley Mitchell, uh, thank you for being here today. Hi. (laughs) For those of you listening out there, have you participated in Annie's Hope? How did the organization help you? You can give us a call at 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. Or you can send us a tweet at ST on air or email us at talk at stlpublicradio.org. So Becky Byrne, this organization is is your baby. You were the person who started it. What led you to form this organization? Basically, it was just hearing the voices of grieving families. My background is originally in nursing, and some of the kids that I cared for did not survive. And so listening to the families and them recurrently saying that nobody gets this. Unless you've walked in it, you don't understand it. You feel alone and isolated. People don't want to talk about it. They'd rather turn away from you at the grocery store. Things like that. And they just don't know how to do it. You're not born knowing how to cope with life's tragedies like this. So was the original idea just to help people in this situation find other people in this situation? We are based more on that peer model. There's a lot of education that's woven into it um, and introducing ways of coping and such like that. But yeah, it's about connecting people who can really support each other so they can feel like they belong to a group, not the group that they really want to get into, but one that they're forced into. So Brandon Mitchell, how did you first learn about Annie's Hope? I actually learned about Annie's Hope through Riley's preschool counselor. So he was four when his mom died and I had no idea what to do. So I went to his counselor and he said, yeah, there's this place called Annie's Hope, you know, give them a call and see what they can do. And so in your case, um, what what was sort of the first step of of getting involved? I'm sure when you gave them this call, they were happy to help. Uh, Yeah, they will. So they had a couple different, they were in the middle of a support group. So they couldn't, I couldn't do anything right then and there. But they said, you know, here's the application, fill it out. And then there'll be another one starting in a few months. And... That, that was it. That, it took off from there. Okay. So it began with attending this support group. Yeah. Riley, so you were four years old at the time. Um, do you have any memory of, of that period in your life? Uh, not really. Um, so you started going to this support group, and it sounds like Annie's Hope has been something that's continued to be a part of your life as, as you've gotten older. Yeah. I have no idea what I would have done if my dad would have found out what Annie's Hope was. And so um, as it's been a part of your life, there has been this support group. What are some of the other things that you've done with Annie's Hope? Uh, I have gone camping with them. And what's that like? It was really fun. They've had camp. They had cabins. They had archery, BB guns, very fun things to do, kayaking. Uh, So, Becky Byrne, tell us about this camp. I understand this is one of the major programs um, that Annie's Hope does. When did this become part of of the offerings that you provide? Our camp started from day one. So we had 10 programs, and they've all grown and expanded just to serve more. 
Um, so, yeah, camp is about bringing the kids together, not only for them to support each other, but um, so we have support group um, kind of settings as well. But it's also just allowing them to feel joy. Sometimes that just doesn't feel like something you're allowed to use. Society maybe thinks you're supposed to be sad all the time. But kids, they can't stay in that emotional state for long periods of time the younger they are. So they need to feel joy and connected to other kids as well. And so how long does this camp last? We have two camps now. And so one is for school-age kids. The one that Riley went to is called Camp Courage. And it's a week long overnight. And then we have a second week Immediately afterwards, it's for teenagers, and it's as well a week long. Okay. Um, And so there's all sorts of activities that have nothing to do with grieving, um, but then there's also, like, some support-type services. Exactly. Everything is intentional, though. So it may not be directly related to grief, meaning we're sitting around and we're doing a support group circle. But the training that we do with the counselors is so that any moment they can be sitting side by side at the lake fishing and a conversation can come up and and Riley could have started talking about his mom or something or remembered something or asked, you know, gosh, I wonder, you know, um, what she's doing up in heaven. You know, that kind of thing. If heaven's a concept that a family um, embraces and it's something that, that brings them some help. So it just allows that organic stuff to happen. So everything is intentional. Mm -hmm. So they're prepared for these moments that an ordinary camp counselor might be completely caught off guard. An ordinary one, probably not going to chat about it, (laughs) not going to listen so well. (laughs) But in this case, they know how to respond. Yes. Um, Brandon Mitchell, how old was Riley when he first went to this overnight camp? Uh, he was, you have to be six. So as soon, you know, as soon as he turned six, I filled in the application and then he went Three straight years. Wow. Yeah. You must have been nervous that first year sending him to a sleepover camp. I was extremely nervous, but he wasn't at all. He I wasn't. mean, because he was just so comfortable with everybody at Annie's Hope that it was like I don't, a second home to him, you know, and he was he was just happy to get away with from me, I think, too. So. <laughs> Riley, so did you already know the kids that um, some of your fellow campers before you even got to camp? No, I actually did not know anyone. So what made you so confident going in? I feel like camp can be such a scary thing for a kid. You were you were pretty young. I mean, I have no idea why, but I'm just like, when I see, do new things, I'm not really scared. I'm more of excited and thrilled. I'm, I'm really impressed with his attitude. If I was six years old going to camp, I think I would have been freaked out. And the thing is, at Camp Courage, we take about 96 kids. Oh, wow. So for many, it is very overwhelming. I think part of that's got to be part of his nature and part of um, Brandon and his mom's influence mm-hmm. on him that just gives him that confidence to be able to go out. But yeah, it's, it's a lot of kids, and the other camp has about 80, something like that. So yeah. So Riley, when you're at this camp, um, do you feel like you can open up with the kids there in ways that's different than just your, your classmates at school? Yeah, I usually talk... I don't really know the kids that much. Usually it's one year I talk with them. Then once it's over, I don't really know them the next year because I forgot all their names Mm -hmm. because it's been a year. So. And do the kids tend to have conversations about, yeah, here's what happened to my mom. Here's what happened to my dad. Or is it more just a chance to, to have fun and not even think about that? It's kind of a little bit of both. Mm hmm. So there is some opening up. Um, people are talking about things. But what are your other favorite parts of camp? Uh, 
There's a lot. I mean, we got we, when we went fishing. I loved it. I never caught a fish though yet. Well, I have caught a fish, but not at Annie's Hope. Not at camp. Yeah, Brandon Mitchell. That's a, a great attitude I'm seeing from your son. He's never caught a fish at this camp yet. He still loves to, the fishing experiment yeah. of it. Yeah, he never. He doesn't give up on anything he does. He's great. So he's now gone for three years. Mm-hmm. Um, what are the changes you've seen in him during that period? He is open to talk about anything. I mean, so if he's having a bad day, the biggest thing I've seen is his emotions. He's opening to talking about it. You know, he doesn't just hold them in like a lot of people do. He comes to me, Dad, I'm having a bad day. You know, and we talk about it, we figure out a solution. And I credit a lot of that to Annie's Hope and what he's learned. Mm-hmm. Becky Byrne, tell me, I know these support groups are also a, a huge part of what you guys do. Um, how, how might that be different than a traditional support group because you're dealing with kids? How are those run? Oh, very different. Our support groups are customized related to who those particular kids are in that set. So they're, they're divided into six different age groups, about two two and a half years apart from each other. And so each week it is designed. So the two facilitators are figuring out what have we learned from the kids? What have they asked for basically, either through their art or through puppetry or whatever? What's the next area that we think we should explore with them? And then we're trying to give them additional um, tools to use. So yeah, it's very customized. Um, We approach it uh, with the idea of they're bringing tons of anxiety and vulnerability. Adults and kids are doing it. Um, We realize developmentally, the younger age kids, obviously they don't have the words and the thinking. You ask the question of Riley, about them talking about it. Mm-hmm. Some of them, depending on many factors, they'll talk and talk and talk about it because they have given an invitation. And sometimes some of those invitations are very subtle, mm-hmm. okay? Somebody else role models talking about it, and that immediately gives the impression that, oh, gosh, nobody laughed at them. Nobody walked away. Nobody made a, a nasty joke that tells them that it's okay. So the groups are very customized and um, we're always looking at um, creative ways. And with kids, you have to be more creative. They don't have the words, they don't have the thought process yet. So you've got to tap into other ways, which is usually the really core pieces, the expressive stuff. And for parents, um, what do you find that that you've gotten out of this? I learned how to talk about death Mm -hmm. as not as this, I stopped using ambiguous language like passed away. I, I, I call it death. And a lot of people have trouble with that. And I used to think it was a taboo subject. Mm-hmm. You know, I grew up thinking that, okay, somebody dies, they die, that's it. You know, and you don't, you just shove it deep down and that's it. But now it's, we talk about it. His, his grandfather died about a year ago. We had an open conversation about it, and we just remember him however we can. Hmm. So the process of having to deal with the, the tragedy with your wife, it sounds like that ended up teaching you some things that— Oh, my gosh. When, I've <laughs> learned so much from Annie's Hope be, beyond just grief, just just about life, dealing with death, you know? And so it sounds like then when there was the death of a, a grandparent, you were so ready for that in a way that most parents are not he at would, all. He was more ready for it than I was. We were walking out of the hospital. I was crying, and he's holding my hand saying, Dad, everything's going to be okay. Wow. <laughs> and you've been able to, as, as time has passed after your grandfather's death, have you continued to be able to, to feel that way? Or have there been moments where you find yourself just really feeling sad? I felt sad a lot. Um, I felt sad... Mostly because of the traditions, basically. Because I I remember this Christmas, we uh, I was sad because, I mean, my pappy wasn't there. He wasn't there. 
because my grandparents gave me a lot of gifts. <laughs> <laughs> Let's be truthful about so that. So that is, yeah, that's something you definitely <laughs> missed. Um, so you found yourself thinking hard about him during that holiday season. Yeah, but I, Annie's Hope gave me that courage not to just get beaten up by emotions, but to actually hold back. I mean, it's, it's okay to cry. It's okay mm-hmm. to cry about death. Mm-hmm. That's the number one thing you can do. It's, it's okay. Don't be embarrassed or anything. It's, but, Becky it's, Byrne, this is, this is uh, such insight coming from such a yeah, young man. Yeah, it actually brings tears to my eyes because um, that's, our, that's really our whole mission is to really transform the way that we look at death and dying and grief, which also then informs how we approach life. And I just think that Riley is very articulate, obviously, um, about what's happening. And we trust the process that to whatever degree, from whatever angle, all kids and adults that we serve are getting a piece of that. So I feel like so much of what the average person knows about grief is we just know that there are these stages, right? Is it something where um, it's different for kids? Do they have different stages than adults go through? Um, we don't think in terms of stages. We think of tasks, okay? Stages seem to be like you do one and you finish it and then you move on and you do the next. That's not grief and that's never been reality. And even when that whole concept came out, it was just misunderstood by the general public. So generally, though, everybody has emotions. The emotions that might be more intense for one may not be the intense ones for another. Everybody has questions. Everybody to some degree says why. You know, somebody... You know, most people say, how do I do this? How do I move on and and try to move energy somewhere else? Is it okay to do that? So the process is pretty common. It's just that the actual details on how you do it are very, very individual. And, and, you know, at the same time, there have been so many murders in St. Louis this summer. And there's so many kids who have been caught up in violence, losing classmates, losing parents, um, losing all sorts of loved ones. And in many cases, they're not getting the kind of services that we'd love to see them get. What kind of impact can that have on a community when there's all this this grief that's going untalked about and untreated? Oh, it's it's this massive cloak of burden um, because... You know, we expect them just to move on and we don't recognize it. Kids don't do it like adults do it. You know, adults can sit in their grief and pain for long periods of time. They become, they can sleep all the time. You know, they can stop talking about it. They can have problems at work and stuff like that. Kids, though, they balance it because they do it in short spurts. So they need to play. And in that play, it's purposeful purposeful play. Um, So they're not always recognized. And then it's too painful to watch a child grieve. Therefore, we want to just avoid it. Mm -hmm. Those are big deals that make a difference. And with those kids, um, you know, there's so many factors that are influencing that are making it more difficult. And it's a cumulative effect. Mm -hmm. When you have death after death after death, which is what's happening in, in some of those communities where those kids are Brandon Mitchell, I I imagine it's just so hard to resist the impulse to just try to cheer someone up, which it seems like maybe that's that's not the best way to go. I think that's what most people think of. They they think that they should have the right thing to say, (laughs) that they should, you know, be like, oh, well, you know, it it gets better. Well, sometimes it doesn't, you know. It's been four years and I still grieve to this day. But it's, you know... The biggest thing I learned is just to be present. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't have to say anything. If, If he's saying something, just let him talk. Yeah. You know, and that's that's a big thing is just just to be there in their grief with them. 
So, Riley, what advice would you give if there was a a kid listening to this show, and maybe they're a 10-year-old or maybe they're a 4-year-old like you were when this happened? Um, What advice would you give to them if they're dealing with somebody died and and they love that person? Well, I would just say to don't worry about it, but don't worry about it as much. I mean, it's grief. I mean, I would say to go to Annie's Hope. I mean, they, I mean, I didn't know what I would do, to be honest. And here you are, and it sounds like you're just, you're doing really well. Yeah, to this day, I sometimes cry about how my mom died. Mm-hmm. And yet here you are, and, and your life has, has continued, and you've had all these, these great moments, even with that sadness. So I guess there's a lesson for all of us there. Um, Becky Byrne, what about people who um, who know someone they love who are dealing with this? So many of us, um, as, as Brandon alluded to, we're just afraid of saying the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. So what advice would you offer for the person who wants to help but is just frightened? I echo what Brandon said. Be present. You know, be willing to have either a conversation um, where you're just exploring it, not answers. They don't exist. The person has those answers. They have to work really hard to find some of them. Um, But just be present and just be a good listener. Just be willing to know that there's pain out there. You can walk beside the person. You don't need to be pushing the person, pulling the person. Just walk beside them along the journey. That in itself is the most powerful thing you can do for someone. Um, Our caller, Doreen from St. Louis, she didn't want to go on the air, but she shared that she's a grandmother whose son lost his wife when the kids were younger than 10 years old. And she says Annie's Hope was a great organization, not only for the kids, but for the entire family. So that's a a testimonial from one of our listeners. Becky Byrne, if someone hears about the work that your organization does and they'd like to help in some way, what would be the best way they could do that? They can get on our website annieshope.org. They could ring us up. Um, We'd love to talk about it because the more that we can hear what their story is and get that information from them, we can then match them up with programs. All of our programs are free. They can enter and um, embrace any one of those or all of them. It doesn't matter. They, They access us as long as they want, really. Okay. Well, Becky Byrne of Annie's Hope, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. And Riley Mitchell, thank you so much for being here. You're welcome. And Brandon Mitchell, um, thank you for coming. It's been, it's been great talking to all three of you. Thank you. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at ChooseWood.com.